0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Amara, and you're listening to The Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the summer. We need this time in the sun to come together and revel in each other. I know that I need it. If we've learned one thing over the past year, it's that life is short. So please take advantage of this time if you can. Last week, you heard about the new limited series podcast that the TransLash team and I are working on called The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. In it. We will be looking at the far-right organizations, opportunistic politicians, dark money, and extreme religious ideology driving the explosion of anti-trans bills this year. At Translash, we've been hard at work on this for over a year and are putting the finishing touches on that series right now. It launches later this month. That's why today I'm sharing with you another podcast, Gender Reveal, where the tables get turned on me. I get asked the questions instead of asking the questions myself. And it's honestly a little weird because Gender Reveals host, Tuck Woodstock, forces me to take a deep dive into my work and what brought me here, y'all. But it was honestly, hands down, one of the best interviews I've ever had. That's even though Tuck made mama work. So sit back and enjoy our conversation. And remember to subscribe to Gender Reveal wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, it's Tuck. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that this week's episode include mentions of trans death, including murder, as well as the concept of suicidality. Uh, no details are shared, but please take care of yourselves however you need. Welcome to Gender Reveal, a podcast where we hopefully get a little bit closer to understanding what the hell gender is. I'm your host and resident gender detective, Tuck Woodstock. Hey everyone, I hope you're all hanging in there. It has been almost a full calendar year since we launched a new season of Gender Reveal, but here we are, thank God. So to all of our longtime friends, thank you so much for your unending patience, and to our new friends, welcome. Thank you for being here. For our season six premiere, I am thrilled to be sharing my recent conversation with Translash founder Amara Jones. I first met Amara when we both guested on Maria Anahosa's In the Thick podcast together, and I have been a huge fan of Amara's podcast, aptly named the Translash podcast, ever since she launched it a few months ago. I think it was a few months ago. What is time? In this week's episode, Amara talks about how to be a better ally to Black trans people, why anger is sometimes our best tool for change. And it is
1: enraging that people don't hear you unless you are screaming, but then say, oh, we're afraid of you because you're screaming. Well, if you listened, I wouldn't have to shout.
2: And why trans people are essential to building better futures.
1: All of the things that we have had to endure as trans people make us the right people to lead and these moments
2: but before we get to that of course it is announcement time first and foremost thanks to the hard work of Gigi, Xander, Isara, brenna Kara and our whole team of transcriptionists we finally have transcripts of every episode of the show available at genderpodcast.com/listen so if you have friends who aren't able to access podcasts by listening to them or maybe you prefer a transcribed version or uh Maybe you want to reference an old podcast for uh, something you're working on. Anyway, please uh, let people know that these resources are available. And if you would like to join our team of transcriptionists, I run all of that through our Slack. So please join us on the Gender Reveal Slack at bit.ly slash gender slack 2 and join the transcription team channel. Speaking of which, even if you don't want to transcribe the show, you are more than welcome to join our online community. Again, that is at bit.ly slash slack 2 We also have a really fun round of merch this month. So if you're new to the show, you should know that our merch store changes every month and everything in it is designed by trans listeners of the show. And at the end of the month, I take all the proceeds and I split them between the designers and an organization of the designer's choice. So, for example, uh, our friend Fern currently has this wonderful rainbow, not gay as in happy, queer as in fuck you design where half the proceeds are going to Camp Lilac, which is a camp for trans youth. It seems amazing. Uh, Our friend Ariana Martinez, who's one of my favorite artists, has a shirt up that says gender is a boundless expanse. That really is one of the most beautiful merch items we've ever had. It's like a piece of art, uh, which makes sense because they're an artist. And all of the proceeds on that one goes like all of the proceeds on that one actually goes to the Transgender Law Center's Black LGBTQIA migrant project. Uh, I also got baited by Twitter into posting some shirts that are just like statements written in Helvetica. Uh, those are super cheap. They're less than $20, including shipping. And all of the proceeds on that goes to Black Trans Women Inc. So those and a bunch, a bunch of other stuff. It's all available at bit.ly slash gender merch. Uh, there's designs with our newly refreshed logo. There's some of our old favorites. Again, that is bit.ly slash Okay, finally, if you, again, are new to the show, I have put together a bunch of lists of episodes you might like. Sort of, sort of based on interest. So if you go to genderpodcast.com slash starter packs, you will find like a list of authors we love, a list of cartoonists, a list of indigenous guests, a list of transparents, a list of the advice episodes, even though you should be able to find them anyway. Uh, all sorts of good stuff there. So again, that is genderpodcast.com slash starter packs. Uh, maybe share that with your friend when you are trying to get them hooked onto the show. Uh, speaking of which... A bunch of people start the show from the beginning and listen forward. And if that's the case, I guess maybe you aren't listening to this episode right now. You're listening to like episode two. I just want to acknowledge out loud uh, that's terrifying to me because I don't remember anything about anything that happened between like episode four and episode like 64. So I uh, had a different name and a different voice and knew nothing about podcasts or gender. And uh, I'm sorry for whatever I did or said, but I hope that you're having a good time anyway. So we'll have more announcements and reminders at the end of the show. But for now, it is time for This Week in Gender. Before we do anything else this season, I want to take a few moments to remember Monica Roberts, who passed away in October. I am so nervous that I'm not going to do her justice, so I'm going to let her introduce herself via the bio on her website. So it says, Monica Roberts, aka the Trans Griot, is a native Houstonian, Glad award-winning blogger, writer, and award-winning trans human rights advocate. She's the founding editor of TransGrio, and her writing has appeared in the Villarico Project, ebony.com, Huffington Post, and The Advocate. She works to foster understanding and acceptance of trans people inside and outside communities of color. Among her many honors are the Virginia Price Transgender Pioneer Award, the Robert Coles Call of Service Award, the Barbara Jordan Breaking Barriers Award, and the 2020 Susan J. Hyde Award for Longevity in the Movement. In a few minutes, we're going to hear Amara talk about her relationship with Monica, uh, but first let me tell you a bit about transgrio. So to quote from Monica's New York Times obituary, uh, in the West African tradition, a griot is a storyteller, and Ms. Roberts set out to tell the stories and history and lived experiences of the transgender community. She started her blog in 2006, at a time when coverage of transgender issues by the mainstream media was limited and often deemed offensive by those being covered. So what they're hinting at is that back in 2006, uh, most media outlets knew even less and cared even less about how to respectfully talk about trans people uh, than they do now. So Monica created TransGrio as this much-needed space for trans storytelling and trans reporting in which uh, trans folks wouldn't be misgendered or deadnamed or overlooked or disrespected. And she became very good at what must have been a really awful job, which was counting how many trans people had been murdered. Because... Of course, mainstream media outlets would typically misgender and deadname trans people who are killed, which is not only disrespectful and violent in and of itself, but it also prevents our community from having an accurate understanding of the rates of trans violence that's occurring. And perhaps most importantly, it also prevents friends of the deceased person from even knowing that their friend has been killed, because like, why would you know all of your friends dead names? So in January, I was writing a story about systemic violence against trans women for Portland Monthly magazine. And I spent a lot of time clicking through the 14 years of TransGrio archives learning from Monica. And I opened the story talking about her and her blog because I consider her to be the preeminent authority on uh, trans murder victims, which is, again, a terrible thing to be an authority on. And I'm so grateful to her for doing that work. And I want to make sure to explicitly acknowledge that the vast majority of trans murder victims in the United States are Black trans women, and to clarify that while Monica herself was a Black trans woman, she did not die violently, unless you count the violence of a medical system that's inaccessible to Black and trans and lower-income people. Of course, Monica didn't only write or think about trans violence. She was on all these boards and panels and she wrote about all sorts of other things as well. Her most recent blog posts include a piece about judging the 2020 Miss Trans Global pageant, uh, sending well wishes to trans political candidates like Mia Mason and Sarah McBride, and uh, several weeks of official trans griot NFL picks, which I found really endearing. We're going to talk more about Monica today and a bit later this season, but I just wanted to thank Monica from the bottom of my heart for everything she has done for our communities. We would not be where we are today without her. This has been This Week in Gender. Okay, We've got a quick piece of they mail for you this week. Uh, That's just a message from someone that I'm going to read on the show. So this message comes from Jay and it says, hey, I'm a partially sighted queer artist who draws portraits. My commissions are currently open. So check out my Instagram account at j.genesis.art. Thanks. So again, that's jay.genesis.art. Go check out Jay's work. They look great. And if you'd like to submit your own message for us to read on the show, you can do so via the forum in the show notes uh, or by going to genderpodcast.com and scrolling down to the footer and clicking on they email. Mara Jones, whose work has won Emmy and Peabody Awards, is the creator of TransLash Media, a cross-platform journalism, personal storytelling, and narrative project, which produces content to shift the current culture of hostility towards transgender people in the United States. She is also the first journalist in residence at WNYC's The Green Space, where she hosts the monthly program Lives at State, and is the host of the TransLash podcast. In 2020, Amara was featured on the cover of Time Magazine as part of its new American Revolution special edition. In 2019, she chaired the first-ever UN high-level meeting on gender diversity with over 600 participants. Amara's work as a host, on-air news analyst, and writer focuses on the full range of social justice and equity issues. Amara has been featured regularly in The Guardian, The Nation, MSNBC, CNBC, NPR, Mike, Colorlines, and is the frequent guest host of the In the Thick podcast. Amara has held economic policy positions in the Clinton White House and communications positions at Viacom. She holds degrees from the London School of Economics in Columbia, and she is a 2019 Soros Equality Fellow. The way we always start the show in terms of gender, how do you identify?
1: I identify as a woman. She hers are my pronouns.
2: So I want to dive into all sorts of things that you do. I'm so excited to be talking to you. But before that, uh, we actually haven't released an episode in a while. We've been between seasons. So we haven't released anything since Monica Roberts passed away. And oh, wow. celebrating her is one of the first things like I want to do in this season. Yeah. And so I was actually wondering if you would be willing to tell our listeners uh, more about Monica's legacy and like what she's meant to you.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to understate the importance of Monica Roberts in the history of trans people, and specifically the history of how we have come to see ourselves in the way that we expect other people to see us. Uh, Monica Roberts was um, a journalist and an activist. She, in so many ways, helped to craft And lay the groundwork for what trans journalism is. That is to say how to be a part of a community and cover it at the same time. She was essential in raising up the stories of trans people who were murdered, of discovering those who were being misgendered, of insisting that Um, those who were misgendered be properly gendered, and that people take their lives and their stories and what happened to them seriously. And that didn't really happen before Monica Roberts began to insist upon that. So for any of us who are trans journalists or storytellers like myself, we owe her so much. And not only did she tell the stories of death, but she was often the ones who told the stories of trans triumphs. She was a walking library in terms of what trans people had done, what, when, and who those people were. I think for me, she was and is an inspiration. I said at the time of her death that she uh, is and was an essential North Star for for trans journalists, and I think that that's absolutely right. And I know that there were so many people who were moved by her passing from Janet Muck to Laverne Cox to um, Raquel Willis, Alok, the list really goes on. I think that we have to find ways to both preserve her memory and preserve her legacy and to make sure that we continue to uphold the standards of demanding that people take our lives seriously and that we cover them in a way that honors people's humanity.
2: Yeah, she was so inspirational, I think, to any any trans journalist. It's, it's really hard to imagine the world of trans journalism without her.
1: Yeah, and I think trans storytelling, I mean, you know, she meant a lot to people like Janet, and I think that she was really important in terms of a historical memory. I think it's so funny, one of the last... One of the last things she communicated to me in a DM was that I had called Andrea Jenkins the first black trans woman elected in history. And she was like, well, she's the first known one. And we should say that she was the first known one because um, she wasn't the first. And in my mind, I was, you know, I was like, okay, well, I understand that. But if we didn't know who they were, then it's hard to judge if even that person was the first one. That's the first person that we know about. and So we kind of went back and forth, but then she was like, okay, I really respect what you do. And, you know, more soon, that was literally the last thing that she said to me. And that was probably two and a half months ago. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, we really we really need to have Monica on the podcast. Like I really want to have her on. And I thought, Oh, we're slated out to the end of the year. We can do it early next year. That'll be perfect. And, and next year was too late. And so I, you know, I'm so sad about that. I'm so sad that I had that thought and thought, well, we can just do that later. And we couldn't. And it's just a reminder that we really have to, you know, treasure and honor people while they are here and to, just download as much as we can from everything that they've learned.
2: Yes, absolutely. So speaking of your show, I do want to talk about Translash. You're the founder of Translash. Uh, The tagline is Translash tells trans stories to save trans lives during this pivotal moment in history. That's right. Can you tell us more about how Translash got started and, and what you mean by telling trans stories to save trans lives?
1: Yeah. Well, Translash got started at the tail end of another project that I did That was also an independent media project, which was figuring out ways to reconceptualize um, the news for marginalized people overall in the United States. As that project wound down, uh, I asked people, it's called The Last Sip. And so I asked our team, I said, well, what, what should we do? We have a little bit of money left over. What should we do? And everyone said, you should tell the story of what it means to be trans right now. And the first words out of my mouth, the very first words out of my mouth was, why would I do that? Nobody's going to care about that. Mm, wow. That was the first thing that I said. It just rolled out of my tongue, and it was—it's weird to think of the way in which we can think that our our stories are not important, or that no one's going to care about us. I think that that can be a a condition of being trans, and I didn't even realize that I was doing that, or that I even had those thoughts. So, and I also thought there are all these other people that were out there doing things like on YouTube or whatever, and I was like, you know, why? Why do I? Why would I? do I need to come alongside that? And then we, ha- I said, but I, I, you know, we'll have one, one more meeting. And at the last meeting, we'll talk about this again. So we had our very, very, very last team meeting and I asked the question again. And then everybody said that I should do it. And one of the really good things about me is that I know when I should listen to other people. Um, it's just kind of a a a trick, right? Knowing when you should listen and when you shouldn't, even if you disagree with people. And I was like, I thought about it and I said, okay, I trust everybody here and I should do it. But then I said, if I do it, I'm going to do it in a way in which I not only tell my story, but I tell the story of a community. And then within that, tell the story of the country, like where it is. And we made the first short doc, And it was received really well. And so then I just began to put more energy. And as I did more, I understood the critical nature of what I was doing. And that's also really interesting to me as well. What I've learned from this project is that the things that we create change us as much as we change them. And so as I began to understand the importance of what I was doing and how I was doing it in a way that was unique and that was resonating, I then understood that what I needed to do was to grow it, to have the impact that I saw that it could have, that is to save lives. You know, I think that one of the major reasons why we face so much hostility and so much violence is because people don't see us as human and that they essentially devalue us. And I think that a huge part of storytelling, I mean, throughout time, we do it right now, is that it allows us to go into the humanity of other people so that we can understand them, so that we can, can connect with them, so that we have illumination in terms of who they are and what they're going through. And it is my belief that the more we do that, the more that we see um, the humanity of other people, the more people see our humanity as trans people, the less likely they are to support violent policies against us, to allow people to say or to harm us with their words or with their deeds. And it changes the atmosphere in which our murders take place, which is against this backdrop of dehumanization. And that's why I think storytelling is really essential. It's also really important for us as trans people to be able to see possibility, life, a road ahead. And one of the most powerful moments for me was when we released The Future of Trans in June, I got a, a note in my inbox from a trans person who said that seeing that documentary had prevented them from committing suicide the night before. And that's why I believe that storytelling can save lives. It helps us save our own lives, and it also helps to change the atmosphere of harm that leads to our death.
2: Yeah, that's really powerful. I'm so glad that that could be there for that person. So thank you for everything you're doing for our community. I feel like it's you know, somewhat self-selecting, like the people who are going to go out of their way to listen to a podcast about trans people are maybe the people who already are less inclined to murder trans people, how do you make sure that your content reaches like its intended audiences?
1: So a couple of things. You know, we're the, to be clear, the content's not designed for murder. <laughs> so,
2: no, I know, I know, I know.
1: <laughs> so just to be clear, you know, the content as I said, is not designed for murderers, but there is this enormous gray area of silence and people not knowing or understanding that allows those other people to be able to operate without impunity. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when you look into so many of the murders of trans women and black black trans women, especially of course, is that so many of the people who committed the murders don't think they've done anything
0: wrong. Mm.
1: Like they'll they will wait for the police calmly and tell the police, "Yeah, I killed this person." Like they don't in their mind, they haven't done anything wrong. And that's because there's there's a there's a void in our culture that says that we matter and that this is unacceptable, and that that cultural space, that void is there because regular people who who wouldn't want us to to do us harm are not creating the backdrop that says that these people matter and this shouldn't happen. And I have had a lot of people who have said, you know, I was curious about trans people and I really didn't know. And then I looked at your, your documentary or I looked at one of your video projects or I, um, you know, listened to the podcast and now I see all these things that I didn't see before. And it makes me want to do more. Those are the people that it's designed to do because those are the people that help change the cultural background and background noise that is essential for creating space for us. Right. And that's what I think is essential. That's who the podcast is designed at. And it's also designed for us, you know, like, you know, it's also for us to understand the breadth and the range of our community and to draw inspiration from that and possibility from that. Those are who the audience is for. And that's the way we're working to shift culture.
2: Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. Actually, speaking speaking of this, uh, I was listening to your Post election pre results uh, trans podcast episode when you spoke to Caitlin Burns uh, that episode was also edited by our friend Alexander Charles Adams so it was so cool who's a great see. editor yeah, yeah. who's wonderful everyone should hire them but anyway so it's cool to see like a collab with so many like wonderful people and as I was listening I was just thinking about both how comforting that was but also how. Almost unprecedented, it felt to me to hear two news professionals who are both trans women talking about the news and how it will actually affect communities that, like, I and my friends are part of. Uh, Does it feel radical to you to be creating that kind of content?
1: That is my overall goal. I didn't specifically think about that in that conversation, but the way that you framed it, it absolutely is radical. And I think that, you know, why can't two, you know, trans women, who are, as you say, professionals in the news, professionals in journalism, be naturally and organically talking about what's happening in the way that it impacts us in the world and on like meet the press. Like why why can't that exist? You know, because we do exist. You know? And I think that that's really important. That's why I also had Ana Ariola, who is a major force in artificial intelligence, who is a Latinx trans woman, there's so many ways and spaces that we are existing and creating possibility for other people. And the world should know about us, right? And they should know about what we're doing. And we should know about each other. I don't think that that many people underst- you know knew that Anna existed and that she has major thoughts about how we change algorithms to actually not be harmful to trans people like she has a whole framework for that and the way in which she's trying to implement that at right now at microsoft so yeah i think that the entire motivation the thing that drives my work is radical even as it may not always appear radical on the outside i really do believe that we have to shift the way that people think about us and the way they think about gender identity overall. And um, that in and of itself is a radical notion. So as I said, I'm so glad that you saw that in the moment because I didn't think about it with that episode, but it is it is a huge element in in my work and for what I want to do. So thank you for pointing out that right now because I didn't think about it.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. And yeah, I want to also just agree that your guests are incredible and there are so many people on your show that I haven't heard of. And I'm so surprised and like sad that I hadn't heard about them before, but so excited to get to know their work. So, yeah, that's another like fun bonus of listening to your show is just getting to know about all these other incredible trans people in the world doing this really amazing work in all these different fields. It's really cool. So I asked you, you know, what you wanted to talk about on the show. And one of the things you said was that transness is essential to women's equality. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. One of the things that is essential in discrimination and in patriarchy is body essentialism. This attachment of certain characteristics to certain bodies. And the need, therefore, to then place limitations In custom and in law based upon body essentialism right so that because your body theoretically right we know it's not universally true for anybody for all types of bodies but for example because your body is in this narrative capable of reproducing children because it has certain hormones that we associate with varying characteristics that are not related to patriarchy, that women as a whole have to be classified and segregated in a totally different area of society and therefore then excluded from a whole host of other things because you and your body biologically are not suited for those things, right? That's the argument in so many areas about cis women. And so as long as we are biologically determined in quotes it will always lay the groundwork for discrimination exclusion and oppression and what we have to do is to decouple gender from bodies because essentially it is decoupled because gender as we know is this weird combination of like social construct, personal definition, and your body. It's this weird area. Like, gender has got all these different things going on in it. But it is this kind of, like, artificial construction, or parts of it are artificial. And so it's not linked to bodies anyway. It's linked to these ideas and customs and desires and images and a whole host of other things. So it shouldn't be coupled with bodies anyway. But as we're able to put it in its appropriate place to separate gender from bodies, then there's no reason for any type of exclusion. It doesn't, none of those things actually hold. And if what I'm saying sounds odd to people, this, the argument that I'm making is actually the reason why the right wing says that transness is so threatening that it threatens the social order because we cannot have these divisions that allow us to have patriarchy in a way that we think that patriarchy is appropriate. And they're obsessed with us for that reason, because they understand that if the way that we understand gender and gender notions becomes widespread, then patriarchy itself is a done deal. And that's fundamentally why cis women and feminists have to embrace us if they ever want full equality. If they ever want the ability to be able to defined by their capacities um, and talents and motivation, and not by this combination of rules and customs and laws. Um, Biological determinism is in so many laws. That's what made Ruth. Bader Ginsburg so powerful is that she committed her whole life to, to tearing those things down, to, to taking biological determinism out of the law for women. Um, that if we're able to, if it, as they are able to do that, then we can have the society that we all want. And that's why, that's why TERFism is a self, literally a self-defeating exercise. You cannot at the same time say we want liberation and freedom and equality for cis women only and support biological determinist views on womanhood. It will not work and you will never be free
2: you also uh, wrote recently in Time Magazine uh, that the future is trans because the ways we've gone about organizing human life have changed in really fundamental ways. Is that similar to what you were talking about or is that different?
1: It's it's similar to what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I really think that we are essential to the future for so many different reasons, but I think that we are essential to the future because I think all of the things that we have had to endure as trans people make us the right people to lead in these moments, right? We understand that society has to fundamentally change the way in which we relate to the environment has to fundamentally change the way in which we relate to other people has to change. And this 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 journey of transformation, this journey of thinking outside the binary, this journey of knowing what rules to break and how to break them and how when we do it in the right way that we can actually lead to better lives. Those are things that we all have as trans people, every single one of us. And those are the skills that our society needs but is so badly lacking right now.
0: Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And that if we're going to have a future collectively as human beings, then trans people have to be in the vanguard, have to be at the center of that, need to be a part of every part of society, helping people to manage these transformations that, that the whole world is going to have to go through. And that's one of my, my essential messages as well, that like we are essential to the future. The future cannot happen without us. It, it will not. It will not be.
2: Yeah, you also write in the article that Black trans women are essential to creating the future because when everything fails you, you're more clearly able to reimagine what it would look like if things worked, which is what you just said. But I just I love that as a quote.
1: I think that that's right. I mean, I think that like when things aren't working, you know, you don't question things when they're working for you. You just don't. You know what I mean? Like when the lights work all the time, you don't you don't give a whit like where the electricity comes. You don't think about any of that. Right. It's when the lights don't work that you suddenly freak out. Oh, my God, whatever. And how did light, how did lights not work? What? We have this aging equipment, whatever. You know, you then question everything. And so I think that, like, in thinking about why the opportunities were different for me um, as a trans person in journalism versus other people. And why we don't see ourselves represented. Why we don't see our stories covered in the right way. Why the healthcare system is so such a landmine for us. Why do I have to go to court to change my name? Why is the state so interested in what I call myself, right? Like, and why do I have to go to the state to ask for permission? You know, the way in which um, so many systems fail, Black trans people, from education to employment to housing, like you name it. There's just not anything that is working black trans women which is why there's such high levels of marginalization but when those things aren't working you can then look at the gaps and see them really clearly and you can see the failures really clearly and then you can begin to imagine and think about ways to address those that people who never question things um never do and that's why i often have this saying where like if you center black trans people in policymaking and job recruitment and all these other things that you'll actually shift the way those things are done for everybody and create new possibilities for everybody. That, that, you know, one of the things that we're, we understand intuitively is how it's not win or loss, right? It's how to expand our whole lives are about expansion and growth. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why we have to include Black trans women in everything, is that it's not about this trade-off. It's about the definitions of creating more.
2: Yeah. So speaking of this, speaking of Black trans people specifically, uh, I think we've seen in the last few months a lot of people who frankly have never thought about black trans people uh thinking about how to show up for them for the first time and because it is new to them uh they don't really know how to do it in a way that is not tokenizing Mm -hmm. or performative or Mm. like counterproductive uh do Mm -hmm. you have suggestions for people like that who are trying to figure out how to actually like materially uh support black trans communities
1: well, I think read,
2: <laughs> that's the first thing, you know, that's a very personal
1: reflective activity, read Janet's book, which is a great read, read and watch documentaries about Marsha P. Johnson, which you can do. Follow black trans people on social media. There's so many people that tell their stories and that have perspectives, like Hope Giselle, she has like, she does a quadrillion gazillion videos all the time that me, can people can watch and engage. Um, And read what people have written, you know, read what Raquel has written. Um, You can read what I've written. You can read, there's so many things out there in terms of articles and books and videos and people to follow, tons. So get to know people as people, even if they're not in your immediate world. The other thing that I think is bring Black trans people into your orbit. And I don't mean this in terms of like tokenizing, like, let me go get a Black trans friend. But I mean, to the extent that you are in groups or associations, try to get Black trans people to join them. Try to get your workplace, if you can, to hire Black trans people. Put Black trans positive posts on your social media. Um, There are all these things that people can do just in terms of like, including us into their daily lives and consciousness which will lead to other things because for example if you follow black trans people on social media eventually they will tell you what you can do to help they will tell you things that are important they will post events that they will be at uh, that you can watch virtually and learn more what i mean is that like when you include people in or into your routines and orbits then the flow can become natural and i guess that's that's what i would suggest it's not only you know contribute to Black trans organizations and, you know, all those things. But it is starting to put Black trans people into your consciousness. And I think that that's what then leads to change.
2: Well, I think speaking again, sort of to like genuine representation and equity, uh, in August, you published a letter to the president of BET, which was signed by a wide array of Black trans icons, frankly. It's an incredible list. Um, Can you talk about what brought you to write that letter? And I'm also curious, like if you received any kind of response to it.
1: Aye, ay, ay. Um, the, you know one of the great struggles of of the last few months, aside from everything else that's breaking in the world. Um Right. So what happened is that I was asked by an ad agency to make a video that was set to run during the BET Awards. I had been told it had been scheduled and was going to run during the awards. I watched in the awards. It didn't run. The next day I said, BET, why didn't my ad run? Who pulled it? Um, And then I just got total radio silence. And I then started this Twitter campaign and continued to get radio silence, like totally ignoring me and um then eventually i wrote an op-ed for the griot because i wanted it to run in a black publication where i essentially called them out and said what's going on and then of course the minute you do that it they they responded right so then we had some exchanges i thought that those cha- exchanges conversations with them um i was continuing to get contradictory information i was being stonewalled quite frankly they said some things a couple of times that I knew that weren't true about the entire circumstance. And so that then led me to demand more answers. And then it was radio silent again. They just totally ignored. I then began to think about the way in which what happened to me was not in isolation, but it was part of a larger pattern at BT that we could document at least almost a decade in the making. And that's when I realized that it's not personal, it's institutional. This is about a culture, it's not about a person. So then I got the idea to write this letter saying that we as Black trans people demand change at BET. And the reason why is because of some of the things that we addressed at the very beginning of this, which is the essentialness of cultural change. And we know that the United States has the largest number of murders of black, I'm uh, sorry, of trans people of any other country on the planet except for Brazil and Mexico, and that the overwhelming majority of those are black and brown trans women. And so therefore, um, in this case, we I, we felt and I feel that BET has a unique responsibility to not be transphobic, but it has a transphobic culture and that that transphobic culture then translate in, into what's on air and the way in which they, they navigate the world. And so I put that down in a letter and I worked for weeks to circulate it amongst a wide community of people. Uh, I think 48 signed the letter, I think we're up to 53 now. And quite clearly, it's not just me who thinks this, it's it's a broad spectrum of our community. And we wrote that letter and it was because we wanted to demand change at BET. and. Of course, it's the same pattern the minute the conversation becomes public or is in print, BT responds and scrambled. So they responded. And essentially what's been happening since August, if you can believe it, since August, we've been trying to come up with a way to have a conversation about what happened. So far, we've not been able to figure that out. I think, you know, we'll have to just see how it unfolds and then what our response will be. But at some point we have to let, I have to let people know what's going on. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to say we met with them. They heard our concerns. We hear the things that we asked for, hear the things that they said, and, you know, we either are in a good place or we're not in a good place or we're still trying to work it out. That's what I hope I can tell people. But right now I can't say that and we'll see what happens. But again, it's this, it's in a cultural morass there to be quite frank about it. And I am hoping that we can get past that to actually get in a room together, us and them, and have a frank conversation and see where we land. We have not been able to do that. We have spent the time since August talking about talking. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Literally, that's what we've been doing. Yeah. And so we'll see. I want to everybody has a process to get to where they need to be, you know, and hoping that we can they can get there. But, you know, if they can't, then we have to think about what that means as well. It's excruciating. And I and and it involves and also by the way, it's all unpaid labor, right? Like it's all unpaid. Nobody this is you know, this is a huge time sink, you know, and it's emotional labor because this is very triggering and traumatizing and you know, it's it's a lot that goes into this. So it's it's excruciating. Yeah.
2: Do you have a Venmo? Can can we use Venmo you for all of this labor?
1: Sure. Um, uh what's my Venmo? It's just my name, Amara Jones.
2: Perfect. Well, I'll pressure people at the end oh but uh what you were just saying actually reminded me of something that i think about quite a lot which is that so often when we're trying to call out or call in uh media institutions or other sort of corporate entities uh the only way Mm. that we can really get them to respond is by putting pressure on them publicly and Mm -hmm. then i think like in my case, I feel like I have this, you know, brand now of, of being really fiery and always like calling people out and like stirring the shit up. And I'm just like, well, they won't listen to me otherwise. Is that something that you feel like you have to confront as well? Like that kind of balance?
1: I, yeah. And I hate, I hate it because it, I, by the time I'm doing that, I'm incredibly angry. So, you know, I'm incredibly angry. And so that, you know, it takes a lot. I know it takes a lot of energy to do that, but it is, it is. That's the only way that they listen. And it's, um, it's enraging. And it's, if you were doing the right thing from the beginning, we wouldn't be here. It's a real simple, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and if what happened to me was an isolated incident and you actually were, you know, we're really pro LGBT, you wouldn't have like, 53 people from across our community, from academics to people that work in technology, to actors, to politicians, calling you on your transphobia, right? Um, And so that means that the problem is widespread. And it is enraging. And it is enraging that people don't hear you unless you are screaming, but then say, oh, we're afraid of you because you're screaming. Well, if you listened, I wouldn't have to shout.
2: I'm wearing a sweatshirt right now that I love that says, fight everyone, never make it easy. And I'm like, I don't want to live this way. It's just the way we got to do it.
1: Right, right. No, no one wants to do this. Like, this is not fun and it's not what anybody wants to do, but it's necessary. And your behavior, like, mandates it.
2: I was actually just thinking about this. I was listening to your show this morning. There's one episode I hadn't listened to yet. And I was thinking about uh, how wonderful it is to hear you interview people about things that aren't always only about gender and how wonderful it would be. Uh, if my job as like a consultant or like as someone who's just talking about trans people like could become almost obsolete and like how wonderful it would be if I didn't have to do like consulting and workshops anymore because everyone already knew how to treat trans people with basic respect and I could interview people about other things. Do you feel like this will be your work for the rest of your life or are you sort of aiming to make yourself obsolete as well?
1: Ooh, I don't, I don't know. I will always be a huge part of my work. Because I think that one of the things that I realize, and I'm just looking at the arc of American history when I say this, is that these fights are long. You know, they go a long time. And I remember having this conversation with an activist, Black trans uh, woman activist, was in her 20s at the time, not in her 20s now. And she was like, I have to do everything right now. I have to do this and I have to get this and we have to win that and we have to do that and whatever, whatever. And at the same time, she was burning out. And I said to her, I said, these fights are long. The trick is to figure out how to sustain yourself through the longevity, not how to somehow make the process go faster than it's going to go. Because that's just not America. It's just not the way that the system is designed. Right? So, for example, we are going we are on the cusp of having a, a new administration enter office, thank God. And they'll probably reverse a lot of the bad shit that Donald Trump did, which is essential for us to live, right? We're not even talking about like improving our lives. We're talking about the ability to live, like the ability to walk into a hospital and not have someone say, "Oh, that person had a heart has had a heart attack, but I'm not going to treat them because they're trans and I'm uncomfortable." Like Donald Trump says that they could do that should do that. But next year, we're going to face a fight of in almost half the states of the country, 23 states, with anti-trans bills. And that's going to be on the state level. It's going to have nothing to do with the federal government. You know what I mean? This process is long. And I try to think about how to sustain myself through it. I don't know. There may be times in my life when I dial it up. And when I dial it down in terms of like, I'm going to go work on another project, but but I can't ever imagine that there's not going to be a time when this work is necessary. If I am wrong, I will be so thrilled. But I can't imagine a time when we're not going to have to do this work. I just hope that it becomes easier, that there's more space for us, that there that there's more respect for us, and that there's less violence against us. Those are the things that I think that we can expect and should expect, you know, during the time that we're doing this work. But if you look at the right, for example, for for women to get the vote in this United States, that took 80 years. 80 years. The people that started that movement in their 30s, you know, lived until their 70s and 80s. Some of them they died and they didn't live to see what they worked for. There's still no equal rights amendment. To the U.S. Constitution. The people that started that fight, some of them have passed, some of them are still alive. Um, some of them, like Gloria Steinem is, but she's in her 80s. She may not live to see a movement or for an equal rights uh, um, amendment to the Constitution that she helped to start. Oof. Isn't that heavy? Yeah, yeah
2: it is. But it's a, it's a heavy thought. It is, but I'm so grateful and so inspired by all of the work you do, and I'm so excited that you'll be continuing to do it. You start every episode of Translash with a moment of trans joy, and you end it with something that you're looking forward to. And... I think completely separately, unless I did this subconsciously, uh, I've also been trying to ask our guests uh, what they're looking forward to, specifically this season, because it's so hard to look forward to anything in these times when we're you know trapped indefinitely in a quarantine during a pandemic and all these other things. Uh, so I'm curious you know, what you're looking forward to or what's bringing you trans joy lately.
1: Ooh, what's bringing me trans joy? Well, you know what I am loving are all of the Trans Awareness Week posts. I love seeing all of the people who are living their lives, going to school, raising kids, doing all of the normal stuff of life, posting about being proud of being trans and posting about their journeys. Um, I love those posts. And I love looking at those posts of you know, people in all parts of the country doing all sorts of things celebrating their lives i I'm, I'm super inspired by that so that brings me transfer and then there's so many beautiful things that were that were, that are had been done this year in terms of shooting trans people and i mean uh through film and uh photographs <laughs> was, not was with like, What's not with here? firearms <laughs> not with firearms but shooting as in photo shoot uh-huh. um you know so many really interesting and beautiful things that are also being done around this week that are more stylized and all those things give me life because it's like living in a trans world for a week, <laughs> you know, like, um, which I, which I really find inspirational. So that's my trans joy. Like other trans people are my trans joy for real. And my thing that I'm looking forward to is I am on the edge of burning out. Like I am right at the limit and I am taking all of next week off and I don't have anything on the schedule and I won't be doing anything but what I want. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And I'm going to do that again in December for a couple of weeks, because again, practicing what I preach, like if I can't function, I'm not, I can't do what I want to do. I can't do my job. I can't fulfill my purpose. Um, and if I burn out all the other stuff doesn't matter. And so I literally have to take the time. And like so many people, I am traumatized from this year. I am grieving. We have had um, demands upon us all, upon demands, upon demands that we never expected. And at the same time, those of us that are still fortunate enough to be in work, there's too many people that cannot. Um, But for those of us who are still lucky enough to be in work, the, the the demands upon us in our jobs in this crisis moment are even more. And to me, those two things are unsustainable. Like living in cross crisis, being traumatized and elevated demands upon us as people, that's not sustainable. And I can't make the world stop like I want the world to stop, like to take a breath and to just kind of get centered. But I, so I have to do that for myself. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And what I find is totally necessary in this moment is that we've all got to find ways to take a breath. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing.
2: Yeah, I'm genuinely so happy for you and like so proud of you for taking that time because it's definitely I see so often, especially in like, left-leaning circles of folks who are telling everyone else to take a break, but they're not taking a break. And I'm one (laughs) of those people. And it's like the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man gif, you know? So uh, I'm so happy that you're being a positive role model by taking some time for yourself.
1: Yeah. And I hope that you are able to do that because you know, we need everyone. And um, this year has been a lot. And there's no way that we can just keep going, 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 and responding, 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 responding within the context of, of what we're living through right now. And I mean, so many tragedies, right? Not only for us, for me, not only that of coronavirus and uh, wildfires and you name it, um, madman in the White House who wanted to nuke Iran last week <laughs> <laughs> was talked out of it at the last minute. Like that, but also, you know, for, as trans people, we've had the most number of trans murders this year than any other year on record. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's kind of a lot and we have to take breaks. So I hope you're able to do that and that you just do it.
2: Thank you. I want to ask if there's anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we talk about or just anything on your mind right now.
1: Yeah, since this is um, a conversation and a podcast about gender, I think for me, the thing that is essential is that we have to work really hard as trans people to not replicate the binary that we found oppressive, mm-hmm. that we don't let the idea of fulfilling our, if you define yourself, manhood or womanhood, or however you define yourself, even if, as it's non-binary as well, to not replicate in the process of becoming ourselves the oppression of the gender binary. I think it's an essential part of our work that we work really hard to not do that, that we don't police each other, that we pro- provide space for each other to really be ourselves outside of that. And for us to not allow the fulfillment of other people's ideas of who you should be if if you define your gender in traditional terms, define uh, your ability to figure out what you wanna do, how you wanna dress, how you wanna move through the world, who you wanna love, how you wanna love um, In all aspects. I think it's a huge, it's a huge trap that we've got to avoid.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And that actually leads us to our last question, which is in your ideal world, what would the future of gender look like?
1: The future of gender for me is about possibility. It is a future without patriarchy. And core to that future is that we get to tell the world who we are. The world doesn't get to impose itself on us. And that when we tell the world who we are, there's not a negative consequence in terms of life chances, opportunities, and happiness when we do that. And it is a future, therefore, of unimaginable possibility because we haven't lived that future without restrictions. And that when we do, there will be new combinations, ideas, ways of being that we can't even imagine right now. And that, for me, is what I want to be, the future of gender. It is wide open and it is free and we are defined by so many other things than who the world tells us who we are and consequently, therefore, what we can and cannot do. It is a future that is limitless.
2: Hmm. Amara, it was such a privilege and a pleasure and a joy to speak with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're so busy and this was just really, really incredible. I really appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you keep doing that excruciating in the weeds work of one group at a time one company at a time, getting them to act right, because those things stacked up over time are a change. So thank you so much. Thank
2: you. Well, I will do my best um, while also taking a break (laughs) at some point. Uh, Yeah, take a break. (laughs) That's an order. That's going to do it for this week's show. You can find Amara's work at translash.org and amarajones.com find her on social media at Translash Media and Venmo her for her time and labor at Amara Jones. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at G-E-N-D-E-R-E-V-E-A-L. I'm also on Twitter at Tech Woodstock. You can visit genderpodcast.com to find our starter packs of episodes sorted by theme, our transcripts of the show, our contact form, much more. And you can support the work that we do at patreon.com gender, where just $1 gets you access to our weekly newsletter, and $5 or more gets you stickers and other fun prizes. We're also on Venmo and Cash App and PayPal if you'd like to donate that way. Links are in the show notes. Join our online community at fit.ly slash genderslack2 and browse our truly excellent selection of merch at fit.ly slash gender merch. There really is something in there for everyone. All proceeds go to really great causes and everything in that store will disappear by December 31st. So get in there if you want something. This show was produced and edited by me, Tuck Woodstock. But we have another producer joining us this season, Isara Seves. Thank you, Isara, for everything you have done and will continue to do for us. And thank you to Oliver Ash Klein and Montana Thomas for your help in making this episode happen as well. Our logo, which I'm obsessed with, is by the talented Ira M. Lai. Our theme song is by the legendary Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more feelings about gender. Uh, That's not true. My favorite thing is to turn people trans. (laughs)
1: Because that's what we're doing. We have an agenda, apparently, according to the right way.
2: You know, the thing is, the amount of messages I receive on like a weekly basis telling them that my show made me realize that they're trans. I'm just like, I mean, maybe it's true. (laughs) Don't tell them. Um, I won't.